Hi listeners and welcome to our coronavirus series of Visible and Necessary. I'm your host, Dr. George Teleporis, and I'm from the Summer Foundation. We all have a role to play in getting through this pandemic. Wash your hands, don't touch your face, stay at home. These are things that we all need to do. On top of that, we need to work out how to get the support that we need in a way that is safe. We don't have all the answers, but we are here to help you through it. Please remember that we can't provide medical advice. Talk to your doctor for that. Or call the National Coronavirus Info Line on 1-800-020-080 or visit health. On today's episode, I'm joined by NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commissioner Graham Head to talk to us about health providers and being held to account during the coronavirus. If you're like me, you're probably wondering what can we expect from providers during the pandemic? Do they still have to provide services? And if so, under what conditions? I'll be asking your questions about personal protective equipment, staying safe in group homes, staying disability enterprises, and much more. Remember that you can learn more about your rights on the Quality and Safeguards Commission website at www nbscommission.gov.au Hi Graham, welcome to Reasonable and Necessary. Hi George, good to talk to you as always. It's been 18 months since we last spoke. What's been happening? What have you learned in the role? Well, um, it's been a big 18 months since we uh, since we last spoke on a Podcast, of course, the commission's been driving out the uh, the rollout of the new quality and safeguarding framework um, across the country, and we're fully up and running in seven of the eight jurisdictions now. And that means that our process of requiring providers to uh, be audited against the new practice standards of responding to complaints from people with disability and uh, their friends and family members uh, sometimes on their behalf um, and responding uh, to uh, reportable incidents that are notified to us. All of that's now happening uh, in every state or territory in Australia except for Western Australia, uh, which comes in uh, uh, this year. Um, So it's been really busy doing all of that um, and making sure that we're educating people about the Commission, what it's here for. We've done a lot of work to reach out to people with disability to encourage them to speak up and speak out if um, if something they're experiencing uh, is uh, 
is worrying them uh, and uh, encouraging people to talk to their providers if they've got a concern or if they feel uncomfortable talking to their providers to talk to us or to ask somebody else to talk to us on their behalf if they prefer. prefer. So um been a really busy time for us, um, developing lots of resources for people with disability in lots of different formats, but also uh, developing resources for disability support workers. One of the things I'm really proud of is the worker orientation module that we released about 11 months ago, which almost a quarter of a million people have completed now, which um, which trains disability support workers on the NDIS, but importantly, on the rights of people with disability and on the new code of conduct. And uh, what I love about that resource is that uh, almost all of the material in it is delivered by people with disability. So really uh, important piece of work, and I guess an example of some of the stuff we've been doing. I love that too. I think that that's a real standout in terms of training. Um, and if people haven't seen it, they can check it out on your website. That's right. Let's and talk certainly, about yeah. certainly encourage um, uh, people uh, that uh, that they're working with that you're working with to uh, to check out the resource if you think that people uh, need some better guidance on how to understand uh, the rights of people with disability. You asked me um, what I'd learned in the last 18 months um, and uh, a lot. Um, I think one of the things that's been really uh, important for me in the role is how open uh, people with disability have been with me about uh, things that they've been thinking about and concerned about for a long time and uh, and their hope for what the commission can do around uh, dealing with uh, ensuring that supports are provided in a safe way and that supports are of a high quality. So um, I've uh, learned, well, I guess I knew this, but I've been reminded of how important it is to engage with the widest range of people possible, to talk to people who are NDIS participants, to find out directly from them what is working well from their point of view and, uh, and what things they're hoping to see from the Commission. Yeah, it's really important, and I think that um, I think it's a reflection on you, Graham. I think you have been very accessible, and um, that's really important that people know that you're a real person and, and that they can come to you in your office um, about anything to do with their NDIS services that they're not happy with. Yeah, but um, particularly for a new organisation, um, you know, a lot of really good thinking. Uh, went into designing the quality and safeguarding framework. People with disability and advocates and a wide range of organisations had in input. But all of this is new and there's always more we can learn about um, things that uh, might need a bit of a tweak or what the practical experience is of people who are either dealing with us or um, or 
um, whose providers are dealing with us. So, you know, it's just good for people to to know that if something's not working in the way they expected it to, that we're, um, uh, we want to hear about that. Let's talk about coronavirus. It's, uh, it's the middle of autumn. We're heading to the end of April now. Um, the numbers are looking more positive, um, but it's still a risk in the community. What are the challenges that you see for quality and safeguarding perspective? Well, I think, you know, across the entire community, this is not uh, something that people were expecting to happen right now. And of course, this is a global event that's moved uh, very, very, very quickly. And for both the wider community, but also um, anyone who um, who is at a higher risk because of a situation they're in, it's important to get good, clear, simple information out that can help people um, uh, prevent uh, becoming infected in the first place, but also can ensure that if a person uh, does become infected that they get the right kind of support as quickly as possible. So the Commission, like many other organisations that w works with a part of the community, in our case, um, uh, participants in the NDIS and their service providers, uh, the challenge for us has been to get good information out quickly that helps people to take the right actions to achieve those two outcomes, preventing transmission and making sure that where a transmission has occurred, that all of the right things are done to manage that uh, uh, properly for the people involved. And we've had a very comprehensive system of provider alerts. So I first issued an alert to uh, registered providers um, uh, on the 7th of February. And between that date and today, we've issued a huge uh, amount of information, all presented quite simply to providers, as well as releasing participant information about how to deal with particular issues associated with managing uh, the pandemic. Uh, so um, I think most people in similar roles to mine would say that you know, the challenge has been to make sure that people are made aware very quickly of changes that are relevant to them and that they've got good quality information that they can act on. Do we know how many participants have um, contracted the virus? So only a very, very small number. One of the things I did a few weeks ago was I issued a legal notice to all providers um, Providers are generally under an obligation to tell me when uh, something changes that might cause them uh, to uh, have a disruption in the supports they provide to people with disability. So in addition to that general obligation, I issued a specific notice to registered providers that they must also tell me whether or not... Uh, there are uh, any 
known cases of a person with disability having acquired um, coronavirus or uh, or a worker. And uh, at the beginning of last week, which was the last time we summarised the notifications that come in in response to that notice, uh, both participants and workers were in single digits. So very low numbers uh, at this stage. And do we know if any of them contracted the virus from the work involved or from receiving support? So um, I wouldn't have that information uh, uh, at uh, this stage, I mean, there's when when a case is confirmed, there's a whole lot of contact tracing stuff that uh, health agencies do. Um, but clearly, based on the fact that those notifications had uh, single-digit figures, there's very low, uh, 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 well, very low numbers in the um, in the uh, sector that we regulate at the moment. Really, the issues about contact tracing and uh, those sorts of things are, are matters for the health authorities. But obviously, you know, we're monitoring what's going on in disability providers very, very closely. So that, you know, one of the um, good things about having a new national regulator in this space is that we've been able to collect that information to understand what's going on and to make sure that we understand whether or not uh, there's an emerging uh, issue uh, in uh, in NDIS providers and uh, the news at this uh, time is very good. Let's talk about people in group homes. And quite concerned as a lot of us are about people in group homes. We're concerned um, about infection, but we're also concerned about restricted practices and a lack of possibly um, oversight because there's um, possibly less family visits or less um, contact with the outside world. What what's that? what what are you doing in this space of group homes? Like what what are you doing to protect people living in group homes from from abuse? And what are you also doing around making sure that restricted practices don't go too far? So they're really important uh questions, George. I think that, um, you know, obviously uh, an important focus for the Commission is, you know, in what circumstances uh, people with disability might be uh, at a particular risk because of things that are being done to respond to COVID-19. So um, the first thing I'd say is that um, we have been very clear and released uh, to participants and had the NDIA assist us to promote this material, information to participants and advocates about what they should expect from their providers uh, during the management of the pandemic response. Because it is important that people know that we're still here we are still taking complaints, we're following up on those complaints, and we can still initiate our own 
examination of, uh, of things, whether or not a complaint has been lodged. We're concerned to make sure that people, uh, disability support workers and providers generally understand that um, some practices, for instance, isolating people in uh, group homes, um, uh, that there are only certain circumstances which would be determined by public health uh, authorities about when isolation is necessary to manage the response. We've also been concerned uh, to ensure that there's not a greater use of restrictive practices um, as a result of people taking uh, inappropriate actions around uh, uh, responding to some aspect of, uh, of the pandemic. So I've issued uh, a provider uh, notification to all registered providers about the fact that uh, the regulation of restrictive practices continues, that any unauthorised use of a restrictive practice must be notified to us. Um, the way restrictive practices work uh, under the new quality and safeguarding framework is that we've got to focus on reducing the use of those practices and ultimately eliminating them. Uh, the obligations on providers to report any unauthorised use of a restrictive practice continue through COVID-19. Uh, and um, one of the, uh, I guess, important uh, tools that we have is where we believe that uh, that reporting is inaccurate or where people are doing uh, the wrong thing. I have a range of regulatory tools I can use to, uh, to improve practice. So we have a much better system under the new arrangements of understanding what restrictive practices are being used, whether or not there's a proper behaviour support plan in place, um, whether or not providers are uh, reporting multiple uses of an unauthorised restrictive practice, and we would uh, that we would then take action in relation to. So, but just to summarise, the first thing we've done is remind people of their obligations and that their obligations continue. Uh, the provider alert we sent out, uh, the second provider alert that we sent out in early March was very much focused on letting every registered provider know that they have particular responsibilities to us as the regulator, which are about honouring their responsibilities to participants, that they must continue to report the uh, the uh, unauthorised use of restrictive practices as a reportable incident. And we look at the data that's coming in to see whether or not uh, we can identify patterns of what look like unusual reporting, and that can include underreporting. So there's a basis for taking action. We've let participants know that um, we're still uh, here to respond to complaints and incidents. Um, and we've uh, made that information available to advocates as well. So, and of course, as we do always, we've put good quality information out to providers about what good practice looks like um, during the pandemic uh, as it relates to the use of restrictive practices. 
that city really uh that city isn't it that we need we need really <laughs> good practice at the moment as I've always needed it. Um what what I'm thinking um relates partly though to the oversight. So um I'm hearing you talk about people at providers telling you what they're doing. But when people are no longer having visitors, um, it becomes a bit of a closed shop, doesn't it? And and suddenly there's fewer people to report that there's a problem. That is true, and I suppose one of the things that's a, a challenge, given the nature of COVID nineteen, is it means that. Um, uh, well, the main mechanism that's used to prevent uh, transmission is a mechanism that distances us from each other. So for us as a regulator, what that uh, part of the, uh, I guess, response to that is uh, the frequency with which we interact with providers so that they understand that we are watching very closely what's uh, happening in the system to respond to the pandemic. But things like, um, for instance, the uh, legal notice I issued around people needing to report certain things uh, uh, differently, the fact that that's been subject to a particular notice tells people that uh, we're closely monitoring the situation. We, I think, um, uh, can tell by the traffic to our website and whatnot that uh, large numbers of workers are accessing our information. Often it will be a worker that uh, might tell us that a co-worker is doing the wrong thing. So the fact that the Commission and its uh, functions are better known by people. You know, the fact that a quarter of a million people have done the worker orientation module means that even although um, those problems are real about potentially fewer people visiting, we do have, I think, a much higher level of awareness um, of what the right thing looks like and uh, and people who are prepared to take action. So I think we've seen an increase in uh, recent times of the reports that come in uh, from co-workers about people doing the wrong thing. So um, that doesn't completely address the issue that you're talking about. The reality is that we're dealing with a situation where social distancing does mean that uh, that fewer people are entering uh, some environments and that people are much more dependent on workers doing the right thing. But the Commission, uh, I think, is very active in its communication with providers, both through formal legal mechanisms and also in the direct discussions I have with people running provider organisations. And we try and make sure that participants are fully aware of what can be done to support them. But, um, I, but I acknowledge that, you know, given social distancing, that creates some particular challenges uh, uh, during this pandemic. I'd like us to uh, use 
I mean, you know, we're all using technology a lot more, but I'd like us to build the capacity of people in group homes or people who are currently socially isolating to make sure they have access to you know, the internet, to you know, computers or iPads or other ways of interacting. I know it's not easy, but we need to put in the time and effort to make sure that people have access to that technology now more than ever. Yeah, I think um, I think uh, the ease with which uh, people are supported to be able to interact with the outside world is um, is becoming very apparent to everybody uh, as we deal with various aspects of this pandemic. So I do think um, uh, you asked me earlier about things that I've learned. Um, one of the things that I've learned during the course of this is that there is a high degree of variability uh, around the level of access that people have to some technology and managing public health um, uh, events uh, such as this uh, can obviously be uh, assisted by people uh, being able to access technology that allows them to communicate easily with people who can provide them with help and support. Indeed. Let's talk about um, personal protective equipment. And um, there's been a real concern out there that that support workers and people with disabilities have had difficulty in accessing the necessary masks and gloves and other other equipment to keep themselves safe. I know that you've been doing some work to to address this. Can you just tell people what what they can expect? So um the Commission's been working with um, with the Department of Social Services and the Department of Health uh, on this issue. Um, everyone uh, is generally aware that um, not just here but globally there have been challenges with personal protective equipment. In Australia, we have a, a national uh, stockpile uh, of PPE, which is managed by uh, the Department of Health. Um, the situation with PPE is that de the Department of Health really determines um, uh, the guidelines around uh, the circumstances in which PPE is, uh, is recommended or required. Um, what we've been able to do is to ensure that so you know obviously people who uh, who uh, routinely use PPE uh, in uh, some aspect of their supports are encouraged to try and access it through uh, the normal means but we understand of course that that's been quite a challenge and so there is now a dedicated email address um, uh, for um, NDIS uh, providers and participants who uh, whose normal arrangements have been unable to provide them with PPE so that uh, they can be considered for um, access to the national stockpile. 
Um, so that's uh, an important development. Uh, and of course, um, people will have seen and heard in the news recently about uh, some of the increases in availability of some types of PPE generally. So it's quite, I think, an important development that the unique needs of people with disability are recognised and there is now a dedicated email address uh, uh, for the for providers and self-managing participants uh, who need consideration uh, for accessing national stockpile. That's important for people to know. And um, I, I have I have access to the, uh, the online form, um, and there are lots of questions in there that that really um, outline that you know certain people will be prioritised. Yeah. So if you need assistance with yeah, close personal contact. Um, obviously, if there's a um, an infection, you know there's a whole higher level of need. Yeah, so at least now there is a, a process in place, which is quite positive. Yeah, and if people want to know more about uh, any of this, um, we've got. Uh, on our website, uh, www.ndiscommission.gov.au, there's a COVID-19 page. That's all organised uh, in a fairly intuitive way so that there's information for participants and information for providers. I think it's often really a good thing for um, participants, people with disability, to know what we're saying to providers. And so all of that information what we're saying to providers about what they should be doing is available for people with disability to to look at. It's all presented quite simply. Uh, a number of the resources are available uh, in uh, in easy read format, uh, and of course our uh, our website is um, is uh, fully accessible. So lots of good good, but uh, simply presented information so that people can get up to speed reasonably easily about uh, about what we recommend uh, you do if um, if you're experiencing a problem but equally you can see what we're saying to providers about what we expect of them um, I'm not just saying to providers I'm interested in um, the we're hearing about um, Australian disability enterprises that they're that they're still operating, um, and that this is putting people at risk. What, what's uh, what's the directive around that? You, well, we don't we um, don't directly determine um, uh, whether or not uh, particular types of businesses uh, are allowed to uh, operate generally across uh, the uh, Australian community. You've got a chief medical officer, a chief health officer in each state uh, uh, and the Commonwealth. You've got a structure that they meet in called the Australian Health Protection Principles Committee, which of course has had a very prominent role in managing the pandemic, but individual public health authorities in each state determine what applies. And ADE is uh, uh, 
subject to the same sorts of obligations that any workplace would be in respect of public health measures. So um, uh, uh, being able to appropriately social distance, etc. So the Commission, uh, of course, we regulate um, NDIS uh, support providers um, and it may be that uh, some ADEs are registered for the provision of some types of supports and we can take action if those supports are not provided properly. But but that's a limited role uh, uh, in respect of uh, the general question you're asking. Um, but, of course, these sorts of uh, uh, work environments are subject to uh, the same kind of public health obligations that other workplaces uh, are. So um, some types of workplaces, of course, are completely closed for some types of activity uh, during COVID-19 in response to public uh, uh, in re- response to public health orders like uh, gyms, etc. Uh, and some businesses have had what they're able to do changed and uh, some businesses are operating in a relatively more uh, normal way, although with a higher proportion of their staff working from home. So there's a range of factors that influence whether or not um, particular types of uh, business activities can continue in their normal way or in a modified way. The last is on something about, and probably the most concerning one for a lot of us is what happens if we do become infected? Uh, a lot of us are concerned that, that services will be withdrawn. Can you talk to us about what you would be expecting of providers? in the circumstance where an NDS participant does contact coronavirus? So, obviously, uh, the key uh, or one of the key uh, drivers for us in in modifying uh, the general obligation to notify us of... um, uh, whether or not a provider uh, is experiencing challenges in providing supports is that we want to ensure that all people with disability who are participants in the NDIS are able to access uh, uh, those supports that are uh, critical to them. Uh, So we... um, we uh, uh, And one of the things that might... um, that might... uh, uh, arises a situation where there are, where either workers or people with disability in a support setting are infected. So there's an absolute obligation on providers to notify us. And then uh, we work with the NDIA um, uh, to ensure that, um, that uh, support... Well, we ensure that supports are not inappropriately withdrawn and when there's a, a, a reasonable um, 
where something's happened that means that uh, a provider is unable to um, uh, to continue providing supports. We work with the NDIA to ensure that substitute support arrangements are put in place. There's also a lot of work we're doing that you would be a little bit aware of, George, um, around um, providing better guidance to providers about managing things related to the health of people with disability that they're providing supports to. So, um, I mean, that goes beyond the question you're asking. So, as a priority uh, in this situation, providers must tell us uh, if uh, they have a participant who's known to be uh, uh, infected, they must also tell us about any changes uh, that they're making to the provision of supports. Uh, we might uh, intervene uh, if uh, we believe that um, uh, uh, that that's warranted, uh, and we might also uh, and we do also work directly with the NDIA to make sure that um, that there's continuity for people. So. Uh, and I would strongly encourage uh, people who feel that uh, that the wrong approach is being taken to let us know or to ask somebody to let us know on your behalf if that's what you prefer. And just so I can um, make sure I've understood this, um, if a provider says to me, oh, George, now that you're COVID-19 positive, um, we're withdrawing services, um, you know, and I'll say lots of reasons why they'll do that. Um, how would you, if I then rang you and said, hello, Commission, my services have been withdrawn, what would I expect would happen? And I know that everything's you know, depends on the situation. So the first thing we would do is check um, if you were using registered providers, um, mm -hmm. uh, the first thing we would do is check to see if we had received any kind of notification about pro about problems that, um, that that provider is having for one reason or another associated with the pandemic around providing supports. Um, and we would look at whether or not in um, making whatever decision they'd made, uh, they were meeting their obligations around um, uh, uh, the provision of your supports. Uh, we might take uh, action uh, if that was not the case uh, or in circumstances where there's a, you know, there may be a range of issues that uh, are not, directly related to whether or not a person uh, has acquired COVID-19. But, you know, if there are providers that are uh, experiencing a particular set of challenges around workforce or, uh, or other um, arrangements that we, our, our focus obviously initially is ensuring that there's the continuity of support there. Uh, but our Equally, our focus, if uh, if we believe that uh, that it's warranted, might be to uh, to work with the provider around uh, why they're doing that and to take action uh, uh, if we believe that that's warranted. So, the most important thing is for people to let us know uh, if 
if that's uh, happening. But people should expect that providers to continue providing support. Yeah, there are some uh, types of um, supports that are obviously more affected by the social distancing rules and where there are. Um, so we're certainly seeing examples of where people with disability are withdrawing from certain activities because uh, uh, of their um, need to socially distance. But there are also um, types of supports that are difficult to provide and observe those arrangements. So obviously, one of the things we're concerned to understand is what is uh, what is behind the situation that somebody is reporting to us, whether or not the provider is behaving reasonably and appropriately, um, uh, and uh, with a fundamental um, uh, commitment to ensure continuity of, of supports. Thank you, Graham. It's uh, been very, very helpful listening to what you've had to say. Have there any, any, anything that you'd like to say to people listening as, as the commissioner, um, to business and to providers about some thoughts on what you'd like to see? Um, in terms of moving forward and making our way through the pandemic? Well, I think what we always want uh, to see at a very basic um, human level is that people understand that we are all in this together. This is happening across our entire community uh, and there are... Um, uh, while it's been enormously disruptive to everyday life, that plays out differently for some people depending on their unique, unique circumstances. So all of us need to think about how we uh, not only look after ourselves, but how we uh, properly support other people in whatever their unique circumstances are to feel safe, and um, and as and so that those people feel reassured that their needs are understood, and that means all of us understanding the guidance that's coming out from public health bodies, um, staying calm and following that guidance, and when you see something that is an indication that people aren't behaving the right way, it's important to let people know about that because the consequences of not doing the right thing um, in a situation like this are, you know, very serious consequences. So I want people to uh, feel that uh, their unique needs are understood and where those needs are not not being met, that people feel okay about uh, about saying so. It's a very important message, Graham. Thanks for joining us today. Always a pleasure, George. Um, I look forward to seeing you in person uh, when it's safe for us to do that. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks. Take care. 
that's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary. Brought to you by the Summer Foundation. Check out our Facebook page for all previous podcasts and transcripts. We also love hearing from you, so please leave your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, for the most up-to-date info on the coronavirus, call the Coronavirus Helpline on 1-800-020-080 or visit health.gov.au. Stay tuned for our next episode and please stay safe and remember to wash your hands.